All right, why don't we all grab a seat, grab a seat. We're gonna get started. We're gonna get started. So we've been in a series going through what's called commonly the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this is kind of part of the larger thing that we've been doing throughout the entire year, which has been called the Year of Biblical Literacy, which means that as a church family, we've been reading through the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. I have a slide that kind of shows you where we're at right now, kind of on a map, um, in terms of reading through the entire Bible. So we, a few weeks ago, entered into the New Testament. So right now, if you're kind of following up to date, you're around Mark chapter 5. I'm not up to date. I'm still somewhere around Matthew, so I'm a little bit behind, uh, though I was really far behind at one time, and I just took a long time and got through it and got caught up to date. So anyways, uh, just FYI, if that's where you're at, if you want to jump in, if you got really far behind in the Old Testament, got off track, uh, we've been saying it's totally fine to just jump back in to start even just with the New Testament. That's totally cool. Just go ahead and jump in, be part of that. So um, the Sermon on the Mount has been this what we would describe as the charter of Jesus' kingdom. In other words, if you want to think of it this way, um, Jesus has an ideal in his mind as to what he expects and what he envisions for people who follow him to look like. This shouldn't shock anybody. Um, Every culture, every community, every society has its own ideas and ideals that it has in order to be a part of that society. It could be a nation. It could be a... Uh, a culture at, say, Google. It could be even like a family model, how a family member is to act and respond and relate to other people. The same is true with Jesus. Jesus has what we would call this ethic, this idea, this ideal of how to live out. And what he does is he imbibes this or unpacks this in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. So we've been making our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through this particular sermon. Today, uh, this kind of marks the third week of what we've been looking at is commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Though what we would distinguish it as is not necessarily the prayer that Jesus prays, though it is the prayer that Jesus gives his disciples. And one of the things that we mentioned a couple weeks ago is that Jesus expects for his people to pray. It's one of those practices that we would say that if you are a follower of Jesus... Jesus' people pray. They seek God. Um, in prayer, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, that if, if prayer is something that's foreign to you, or when you start talking about the subject of prayer, you get overwhelmingly uh, convicted or even condemned, or you feel like a failure, you shouldn't. Like The hope that we would have would be that you would have a recast vision as to what it means to commune, to interact with, to talk with God. And what Jesus does is he gives us template, this model. And we asked the question a couple weeks ago that, again, throughout the church, church's history, the question has been asked, is this a template that is to be kind of memorized and then riff off of? In other words, you just kind of create your own prayer, or should this be a prayer that you just you pray verse by verse or line by line or word by word? And what we said a couple weeks ago is the answer is yes, it's both. Like, definitely learn it, learn it. Uh, let it become second nature to you so that when you pray, you're, you're praying within some sort of consistency to this incredible model. But don't be afraid to even just pray it as an actual prayer. Again, for some of us, we need that. It's like training wheels. Don't be ashamed of training wheels. Like, we need helps. We need aids. Nobody should ever be ashamed of that. Um, but the fact is that if you are in a place where praying seems really foreign to you, 
or you have some sort of a mixed uh, relational you know, context of prayer, you feel guilty or whatever with regard to that, then I would highly recommend just either commit this prayer to memory. It's pretty easy. I think we asked even a couple weeks ago, how many of you have heard of this prayer? Overwhelming majority of you guys raise your hand. How many of you have actually memorized this prayer? Again, I think probably the majority of you guys would say that you have memorized this. But if you've not memorized this, commit this prayer to memory. Uh, secondly, use this as a template that you pray, that you just pray through verse by verse or line by line or phrase by phrase or word by word and until it becomes sort of second nature in, in, your, in your life. So what I want to do this morning is we're going to read um, just this introductory, this little section right here, and then uh, we will get to work looking at the third section of this, and I'll explain what that is in just a moment here. Um, so if you guys want, why don't you open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, if you're not already there. I'm going to read beginning at about verse um, 8, actually about verse 9. So Jesus says, and I'll just read the prayer, and then I'll kind of add another little section onto this. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, or holy is your name. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then Jesus adds this summary statement. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of God. Uh, God, we come to you now and we ask you that you would just open our hearts to hear all that you have to speak to us here this morning. God, we come this morning just with, uh, with expectancy. You're a God that speaks. You're a God that reveals yourself. You're a God that breaks through darkness, pain, and grief, and suffering, and hardship. And you deliver. You set us free. And we ask you this morning, God, that your, your presence, your tangible presence would be sensed and known and that you would do great wonders in our midst here. So we entrust this whole morning in your hands. Give us, again, eyes to see. Give us ears to be able to hear everything that you have to speak to us this morning, we pray. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So what I want to do as we look at this, I want to just kind of break this down. Next little slide, I'll show you kind of some colors of the past three weeks. So again, the first week, we looked at the first phrase, which is our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Second week, that, which was last week, we looked at this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, last week was our family style service, which meant it was different than right now, a little bit louder, a little bit shorter, but um, uh, we tried as best as we can to cover that, and hopefully, if you, if you didn't hear that, you might want to go back and listen to it online, whatever, Facebook Live as well. And then today, what we're going to look at are basically these three phrases that kind of summarizes this, and we'll look at Jesus' summary statement of that in verse 11. So I'll just read it again. Next slide, we'll kind of go into... Um, how this is broken down. Um, as I see what Jesus is addressing here, there's at least three different angles in which Jesus recognizes for us as human beings, as human beings, um, there are three really important elements that make us human beings. Um, you know, there's other ways in which you can break this down as well, but I think what Jesus is acknowledging is for us to thrive, for us to live with some degree of flourishing or fruitfulness in our lives, these three areas need to be taken into consideration. Number one, the idea of physicality, uh, that our physical needs need to be taken care of. Secondly, 
relational. Some of us are suffering right now in our lives because relationally we're not so doing great. There are circumstances in our lives or relationships that are strained or broken or ruined. And then thirdly, we see the importance of spirituality. Uh, this is the intangible, the reality. Oftentimes there's another layer uh, to existence that we oftentimes fail to take into consideration, which we'll get to in just a moment. So I want to break it down in these three different ways. We'll look at each little phrase and then try to make some sense of this. And we'll move on and we'll wrap it up with the summary statement that Jesus has. And then we'll conclude with just an opportunity to respond and worship God and respond to him accordingly as to how he's revealed himself. So with that, let's jump in, take a look at the element of the physicality that Jesus recognizes. Some scholars have identified or kind of looked at the Lord's Prayer, and really, again, even in bigger, broader scope, the Sermon on the Mount, that this is God's uh, message to us as to how to flourish. Again, God's aim for your life is not to languish. Now, that might come as a surprise for some of us, uh, because some of us have this scarcity mentality, like life is just filled with horribleness, right? But the reality is, and then there could be other extremes where there is this expectation that life will, God, you know, as a follower of Jesus, I will get nothing but benefit or abundance or whatnot. But what I would suggest is this, is that God's aim, where God is bringing the entire world, the whole creation, is into a status of flourishing. So what that means is that when we pray things like, Lord, let your kingdom come now on earth as it is in heaven, in this city, on, in San Luis Obispo, in this piece of clay, in this physicality, as it is in heaven. God, what we're asking is, God, would you bring the flourishing that's promised in the future into the present? We're asking, God, would you bring that sense of flourishing, that sense of shalom or peace into our lives here now? And so what we see is that Jesus' aim is to really bring about flourishing by reorienting everything in our lives not around our own selves, but around God. This is what, what Jesus is going to say a little bit later. Seek first the kingdom of God, that God's aim. And in fact, it's also part of the critique of humanity, is that part of the problem with humanity is that we aren't seeking God's kingdom first. We're seeking my kingdom first. And that, that's, that's the, the problem with you know, humanity as a whole. It's why we have things like the evening news, is because we've got 7 billion people on this planet that are all seeking first their own Sovereignty, their own sovereign rule and reign. And when that happens, you and I, we have conflict with each other. And, you know, things escalate. And that's, you get, you, get, you get the news. That's what happens. Or social media. Or Instagram. But the point of the matter is, is this is what happens in the world in which we live in. But what Jesus is doing is trying to reorient everything around himself. And to do that, he takes into consideration that as human beings, there's at least these three areas which he says are important for your flourishing. Number one is the physicality element of who we are. This is where Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. Um, scholars have written so much about this. It's really kind of fascinating to think about what is happening here. Now, again, if you were living first century, if you were Jewish, uh, what that means is that you would have been deeply familiar with the story of ancient Israel. For many of us, we're not Jewish. For others, many of us, uh, there may be to some degree a biblical illiteracy in which we might not be very much aware of the actual storyline of the Bible. But for a Jew, first century, who were, they, they lived in the storyline, they probably would have heard Jesus say this and hearken back in their mind to the moment in which Israel was given their daily bread in the wilderness, that God gave them manna. God miraculously, God kindly, God is a good father, 
took care of his firstborn son in the wilderness because he, he loved them. Even though they were insubordinate, even though they complained, even though they were frustrated, God always took care of them. And again, how we think about God really matters. In other words, the story to which you attribute, the stories that, in which you think about God matter. If you think of God as an angry, frustrated, grumpy old landlord, uh, I've said this before, and, and you are a squatter on his property, right? His slum. Then you're going to envision God as always being cantankerous and frustrated and angry with you. You will definitely not go to that God and ask him for daily bread, will you? You'll run from that God, which is maybe the way that some of you relate to God. You're running from him. Maybe that's where you're at even perhaps today. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, is how you frame, how you think about, how you envision who this God is will actually shape and transform whether or not you actually pray with confidence in him as a good father or you run from him and are constantly wondering how are you going to survive from one day to the next. And this is the invitation of Jesus. He says to come and to see God as a good father who actually loves you and to pray to this God who loves you to give you the daily bread that, you, that he wants to give you. This is an amazing reality that Jesus invites us into. And one other final thing I'll say about this before I move on to the next one is that I don't know how you think about the physical makeup of human beings. So there's a song years ago that goes something like this, This World Is Not My Home. It's kind of became popular. But what I would like to throw out, in some ways, if we think in terms of this world as not being our home, then what will happen is that we will live the sum total of our lives for something beyond this world. Here's what I want to suggest. I think the, the biblical portrait is a far more nuanced and far more beautiful. So I would say this. I'm, I'm going to say the same thing twice, so just follow with me. Don't judge me until you hear everything I said. So number one, uh, this world is not my home. True or false? True. Um, this world, this world, as it now currently stands, and the way it runs, is not my home. True or false? So there's true, but at the same time, it's false. Because this planet, let me put it this way, let me put it this way. This planet which we live on is a gift from God. When God created it, he says, this is good. He puts a stamp of approval on it. But this world, meaning this system that governs this world, maybe another way to think about it, is think about it in the context of hardware and software. This hardware, this planet, it's good. It's a good gift from our Father. It's a gift that keeps on giving. It's a gift that currently, right now, resides under multiple viruses because the operating system that governs it is, is Windows. <laughs> it's as simple as that. It's not Mac OS. One of these days, Jesus will restore and redeem all things. All things will be Mac operated. But the point that I would make is this, is that this world, this operating system that governs this world, that's not our home. If you live your life according to the operating system of this world, then you have made yourself at home in a place that doesn't belong to you, that is actually one day going to be judged and corrected and removed and rebooted and restored. Because right now, this world, this planet, suffers under bad operating systems that have perverted it and ruined it and destroyed it. And 
God says over this planet, this world that he created and gave to humanity, this world will one day be restored. If you don't believe me, take a look and read thoroughly Romans chapter 8. And then finally, look at Genesis, or I'm sorry, the book of Revelation, the last two chapters. What the story of the Bible is, is that God will redeem all things and a new heavens, new earth, not a replacement of the old, but taking that which is suffered under a curse and making all things new. God is not going to make all new things, but he will make all things new. That's the hope of resurrection. So what this prayer tells us is that God actually cares about our physicality. He cares about our makeup. He cares about things that are physical in this world. For God so loved this world that he sent his son, not just disembodied souls to save, to please understand that the hope of you and I as followers of Jesus is not to one day go off into an ethereal state, but resurrection, a new body, a new heavens, a new earth. That's the incredible hope that we're given. And in this prayer, there's to some degree this authentication that God gives to this physicality and says it's good, but it does suffer under destruction and ruin and brokenness, but that destruction and brokenness and ruin will one day be restored and renewed and be given way to wholeness and newness of life. So Jesus invites his followers, pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and to give us our day, our daily bread. Second thing we'll move on to, if you, again, if you want more further details on that, I realize there's a lot more that can be said about this. I'd be happy to point you to some good teaching ideas, concepts to help give you a more robust theology about that. So chat with me afterwards, and I'll be happy to point you in that direction. Secondly, let's take a look at the idea of relational, that God actually cares about the relational makeup of who we are. This is where in verse 12, he says, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. There's kind of an interesting play on Greek words here, which I won't get into, but the word forgive and the word debts um, are very similar. They sound very similar, at least in the Greek. So again, to a Greek hearer, they would have heard this and kind of would have been a little bit rhythmic. Jesus was a poet, apparently. And, uh, the, but the point of the matter is, is that what he's inviting us to do is to ask God, to say, God, forgive us. And again, Jesus' original hearers probably would have, in the back of their mind, envisioned um, passages, which we'll get into in just a moment, like, for example, um, the book of Hosea, where Jesus, uh, or where God actually is in this relationship with his people, and they've fallen into idolatry, and they've turned away from God, and God invites them to return. We'll actually get to this passage in just a moment, but what I want to finish with in this little section here is to just think about the fact that God actually cares about relationships on both levels, what we would describe on vertical, meaning with God, our vertical relationship with God, but also horizontal. Um, that so much so God cares about the relationships that you and I have with each other. Now again, there's different types of spheres in which you can think about relationships that we have. We can think about family members. Um, they're, you know, they can be close to us. They can be really troubling for some of us as well, right? Um, but we think about maybe uh, our, our friends. Like those are people that we like. And then there are our neighbors, which those might be what we would describe as the other, right? You know who the other are in some of your lives? We all have the others, right? They're the ones that we're not necessarily going to go hang out and have coffee with. They're the ones that we're not necessarily going to sit down and have some sort of exchange of relationship with because they're other than us. They're different than us. But within the church, within what Jesus is remaking, 
he calls us to think about how we, to, or to rethink about how we relate to the other. And then finally, there is the relationship with what we would describe as the enemy. This is obviously, and again, enemy is just that. It's the enemy. Those people that obviously are troubling to you, that have caused pain and hurt or anguish or grief or whatever it is to your life. And what Jesus is saying is that how you as my followers relate to friend and enemy and other matters. It absolutely matters. Relationships matter in our lives. And so what we see within any form of relationship is that when there's betrayal or hurt or lies or duplicity or offenses that end up happening within a relationship. There's a lot of ways in which those relationships that are fragile can break and damage and fray and come undone. That Jesus invites us to bring about healing to those things. But again, beginning with God, our relationship to God, forgive us, God, our debts, which implies the fact that there is oftentimes what the Bible describes as guilt. So guilt in the Bible is basically this word that just identifies um, some sort of complicity that, in other words, maybe I've done something or I've shared in something or maybe I didn't do something that I should have done that has actually caused grief or hurt or pain in a relationship. And we would use that word to, descri- or word to describe that as guilt. So all of us have, to some degree, a relationship to guilt. As I was thinking about this, there's at least four different ways in which we oftentimes think about guilt or relate to guilt. Next slide. Kind of have some of these things broken down, common responses to guilt. Number one, we can imagine it, meaning it may not actually be there, but we think it's there. So we walk around in relationships with other people feeling guilty or feeling as if there's some sort of a rift, though that may not actually be the case. It's just imagined. Have you ever met people like that? Have you ever had that? Have you ever been in a relationship with somebody and in the back of your mind there's this narrative that says they hate you? They don't like you. They think you're weird. And so you walk into that relationship and you think that maybe you've done something wrong and there's an offense there. It's an imagined type of a guilt. Secondly is we ignore it. We just don't recognize that it's there. We turn away from it. We, just, we, 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 we sense the, the, the chronic pain of it or the acuteness of it to some degree, and yet we just ignore it. We try to not recognize it. And then thirdly, we deny it. We just turn away from it. And then fourth response is the biblical response is to one to confess it, to recognize it. So what James would say later on in the New Testament, he would say, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. So again, I, I love this passage because it's just laying out the, with clarity that the fact there's something damaged about us as human beings. And our damage has something to do with relationships. That something has gone awry or broken, or wayward, or adrift in our relationships. And when our relationships fracture, it it does something to our souls. We fracture too. Uh, Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors and preachers, has commented on this with regard to even marriages. He said, look, you can be two people in a marriage, obviously, and have the most amazing marriage, and yet everything in your life is going bad. And you will move out into the world in strength. Or you can be two people in a marriage, and your marriage is not healthy, not good. You're constantly fighting. There's constant anguish, constant grief within that relationship. And everything in your life is amazing. You're making lots of money. You're driving two nice cars. You've got all sorts of televisions, and you have all sorts of goods and acquisitions. And the reality is, is your life is totally broken. Because the point of the matter is, is no matter how good, quote-unquote, life might be, 
Relationships matter. The first relationship, primary relationship to all things, foremost relationship, this relationship to God, our Father, that God invites us, Jesus invites us, when you pray, make this a part of your habit, your routine. Say, God, forgive us our debts. And then as we forgive others. And we'll circle back to this with Jesus' final summary statements on this because he has some more things to say and we'll wrap it up with that. The third thing I want to take a look at is the spiritual element. This is where Jesus says in verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from every evil. So the implication here, obviously, is that there is something real that he would describe as evil. So again, the question that we've got to ask of Jesus and of this passage here, what is evil and what is it that we're hoping, hoping to not be led into temptation? Again, the, the obvious questions are, does God have a propensity to lead us into temptation? Now, that's, um, that's not reading accurately, I think, what the original Greek would be implying. But the, the implication is that he's, in, he's inviting us to ask God to steer us away from things that would lead us towards temptation, towards evil. Now again, evil is an important thing to think about. And next slide, I'll kind of point out some ways, common ways in which we respond to evil. So number one, again, we ignore it and or deny it. Secondly, we oftentimes become overly paranoid of it. So this would be somebody that sees evil in every specter of life to such a degree that they are just inundated by it. Um, I've known people over my life that, have, that kind of fit in this category, that everything has a demon or spiritual connection to it on every single level, and at some points, it, it just it gets kind of ridiculous. And then thirdly, there's a self-righteous attitude towards it that basically says, yes, it's out there, yes, it's bad, and I will rise above it, and I will be righteous. So there's kind of a moral high ground that this third per- position takes. If you want to uh, collapse this down even further, you can maybe even think of it in some ways that the Sadducees, which was all three of these were like religious sects within Jesus' day, the, the Sadducees kind of took an approach that um, of ignoring and or denying evil, um, that it's not so much an intangible or spiritual type of reality, and they kind of brokered in just material of the day. And then secondly, we can see that those can be paranoid of it, which is basically like the Essenes. This was a group of people that moved out of a society, and they try to do everything they can to remove themselves from evil, but the reality is that evil is not just simply out there, Right? That's kind of part of the problem, I think, to some degree. In modern Christian viewpoint of it is that evil is out there. It's in those people that belong to that Muslim nation, or it's in that particular po- political party, whether it be the right looking at the left or the left looking at the right. There's this mentality that if I can just pull away from this, then evil will no longer affect me. But the fact of the matter is that evil is far more pernicious. This is too much of a simplistic viewpoint of this. And then thirdly, this idea of self-righteousness toward it, which was kind of what the Pharisees did. They had this sort of ability of looking at themselves as we can overcome it. We're self-righteous. We follow the traditions, the rules, the standards of of the day, and we are going to combat it to some degree. And this is what Jesus ultimately offers as an alternative, is that he teaches us ultimately to acknowledge it. So the thing with regard to evil is that it's real. It exists. There's something in this world, something in society, something in this realm in which we live in, in which there are things that are just inexplicable. And the Bible's way of describing this would be evil. It's the absence of righteousness or the absence of good. And it affects not just those people, 
It affects you and I. It's not just out there. It's right here. It's in our hearts. It's in our mind. And what Jesus says to us over and over again, repeatedly, he says, beware of this. Because in your heart, this is like a factory, a potential factory that can very easily be hacked by evil, by the evil one. So be aware of those viruses that can be downloaded into the very soul, the very core of who you are, the very desire factory of your life. Because if that happens, then it will begin to cause you to drift. So, so this is a more sober reality of this. It's a, it's, it's, it's a way of not just simply looking at evil out there, but inside me. And what Jesus does is he invites us to pray. Pray to your Father who loves you who is aware of the fact that there is evil all around and perhaps even mess around with your heart and he wants to deliver you. He wants to help you through this challenge, this hardship, this oppressiveness, this torment in your mind. Have you ever had that happen? Where your mind can just be tormented? I want to read a couple passages, just kind of play this out in the New Testament, the way this sort of comes into the purview of the New Testament writing. So uh, John chapter 17, verse 14, Jesus, this is actually Jesus' prayer. So if you ever want a good example of the prayer of Jesus, this is, this is actually it. John chapter 17, it's really lengthy, but it's absolutely poetic and beautiful and amazing. John chapter 17, verse 14, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of this world, like, like the Essenes, or like this religious group that we got to remove ourselves or become uh, detached from society and culture at large. He says, I, I pray for them that they would not be taken out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. So apparently in Jesus' mind, there is something of this pernicious darkness, if you want to think of it that way, that's there, that's, that's, that's around us. And Jesus' prayer for his followers, think about that right now, think about that. What are the areas of darkness in your life right now? What are the areas that if you were to just spend a moment considering, contemplating, they're the things that plague you, they're the things that taunt you, they're the things that, that torment you. Do you have those things? I want you to think about the fact that Jesus says, I pray for them. I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. That that evil will not overcome you. And then Jesus invites you to partner with him, to pray to the Father. Father, deliver us from the evil. And then, 2 Thessalonians, another great passage. Paul says, 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 Pray for us that the word of the Lord might speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from the wicked one and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful and he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. So again, this is kind of an interesting insight into the life of Paul the Apostle. So Paul, as you, as you know, he was a former Pharisee. So he was kind of one of those like, righteous ones. Like, that's literally what the word Pharisee means, righteous one. And, and Paul now is a follower of Jesus, and he's going around planting churches. That's, that's basically what he's doing. And he's in very dark territory, demonic strongholds. I mean, demonic activity all around is actually happening and taking place. And there are moments that are really, really dark for Paul. And this is one of those moments, and I'll read another passage of a dark moment for Paul. And so Paul actually invites the church to whom he's writing in Thessalonica. He said, could you guys pray for us? Because there are, there are things that are constantly trying to usurp control and authority, not just simply of what we do, but sometimes perhaps even in our own minds. So I think this is a great opportunity to just even say, guys, pray for your pastors, pray for your leaders, 
It's not easy. I mean, just a couple weeks ago, some of you probably read this on the news, that there's a pastor down in, I don't know, the Inland Valley, I think it was. He committed suicide. I think it was like on a Saturday night, tried to commit suicide, on Sunday he died. The, the types of pressures and tendencies and challenges and hardships that are there are thick. I'll be really frank. I deal with them myself. Absolutely with them myself. Moments of darkness, depression. Moments where I'm just like, I can't do this anymore. I don't think. Like, is there another opportunity or another job or another thing that I can be doing that is not attached to or connected to the darkness that's here? It's real. And what Paul is saying is that this is real. There is evil. There's evil in this world. And he's inviting the followers of Jesus to pray for us that God would overcome the evil that is trying to control and dominate and criticize and remove our passion, our drive for doing what God is up to in this world. Last slide, uh, last verse, and I'll read this and we'll wrap it up. He says, at my defense, all men deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and he strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is what Paul's point is basically saying. Is that, I mean, imagine, just think about this. This is Paul. Think of this as like Paul's journal entry. Paul's mail. Paul's personal mail to his personal friend, Timothy. This is one of those perfect examples that this is, this is one of those messages that is not written to us. It was written for us. We were reading somebody else's mail. This is Paul's personal musings on the dark night of his soul. He's like, look, I felt totally betrayed and abandoned. Serving Jesus, I get thrown in prison, and every person I poured my life out for, bailed. Paul's like, it was dark. But in that moment, God came and stood by me. Not literally, obviously, perhaps figuratively, but the point of the matter is, whatever it was, Paul's saying there's a tangible reality of God's presence there, upholding, sustaining, keeping me from the evil, the evil one. I think this is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's inviting us. When you pray, pray, deliver us from evil. And then finally, what I want to do is I want to finish with some of Jesus' summary statements. I'll show a little video, and then we'll wrap this up. Um, what Jesus then finally says in verse 14, just listen to it again. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Um, the Greek word that he uses there for trespass, in which we'll show you a video in just a second here on this, uh, para, I'm going to get it wrong, but parapatoma, and it'll play into the video, which we'll see in just a moment. He'll probably pronounce it right. I'm sure he will. Um, but don't criticize me when you realize I pronounced it wrong. But the point that I would make is this idea of transgression. He says, forgive us our transgressions, God, as we have also forgiven others. And what Jesus then goes on to say is that if you don't forgive others, now, again, this has kind of led to all sorts of weird teachings and ideas and ideologies and whatnot, but the point, the simple point that I think is basically trying to be communicated here is that if you are a follower of Jesus, if your life has been transformed by God, in other words, God has called you unto himself, God has washed you, God has cleansed you, he's forgiven you of all these things, then you belong to a family of people that are a forgiven people. And this is part of the new creation that God is up to in this world, that forgiven people then forgive people. It's just part of who we are. And what he's saying is that if you 
establish some degree of resistance to forgive others, then you're giving testimony to the fact that something may have not gone right in your own heart. You're not bearing true testimony, true witness to who you actually are. In other words, you are living contrary to the life that is trying to break forth over, upon you, within you, out of you. You're living inconsistent with that. Because this is what's up to, this is what God is up to in this world, is he's taking people that were once broken and lost and sideways and destroyed and ruined and straight up rebellious against him, straight up offenders of him, and he's bringing them back into right alignment with him by beginning with forgiveness, saying, I forgive you, I wash it away, I cleanse it, and I welcome you to become a part of this family of forgiven people who then demonstrate forgiveness. Now, there's so much more that can be said about this, and I just simply do not have time, but I'll say a couple really fast things and I'll summarize. But the point that I would make is this. This raises lots of questions, especially of relationships where maybe there was abuse or difficulties that are associated with that. Um, I want to say this real clearly. There is a radical difference between forgiveness and trust. You may not ever trust somebody again, but you can forgive them. Some people you should never trust again. It's that bad. Don't ever trust them because they're that, they're that bad in their actions. God can save them. God can restore them. God can reorient their life around him. But trust may never, ever be healed in this side of heaven. But what we are invited into is to forgive, which means to release, to let go, to trust to God, rather than to hold on to and to harbor resentment and bitterness and anguish and this whole world that can oftentimes do nothing but soil and ruin and defile your own soul. So we are invited by Jesus to be forgiven people, who forgive people that live this, that embody this. So what I want to do is I'm going to show a quick little video from the Bible Project, and we'll wrap it up with this. Uh, this is on the word transgression, and it kind of plays into the whole theme of this prayer, and then we'll wrap it up. So I think we've got the video. Most people assume the Bible has a lot to say about how messed up humans are, and that's true. It's also true that the Bible's vocabulary about this topic sounds odd to modern people, using words like sin, iniquity, or transgression. And so the Bible's perspective on the human condition is often ignored or treated as ancient and backwards. This is really unfortunate, because through these words, the biblical authors are offering us a deeply profound diagnosis of human nature. Iniquity refers to behavior that's crooked, while sin refers to moral failure. And transgression, this is a fascinating word that you for sure haven't used in conversation recently. So let's focus on it for a few minutes. In Old Testament Hebrew, the noun is pesha, and the verb is pasha. In the New Testament, the Greek word is paraptoma. They're usually translated as transgression, sometimes as rebellion, and in older translations as trespass. These words refer to ways that people violate the trust of others. Pesha describes the betrayal of a relationship, and since there are many kinds of relationships, a lot of different behaviors can be called Pesha. Like if two nations are in a relationship, we would call that a treaty, and Pesha would describe the breaking of that agreement. Like in the biblical book of 2 Kings, we read, After the death of King Ahab, Moab pashad with Israel. Now, this is usually translated, Moab rebelled against Israel. But in biblical Hebrew, you don't pasha against someone, you pasha with them. That is, you break trust with that person. 
The same idea appears in an Old Testament law about theft. If an Israelite is away on a trip and somebody sneaks into their house and steals something, that's robbery. But if the thief was your neighbor, it's Pesha, because there's someone you should be able to trust. Or there's a story about Jacob running away from Laban, his uncle. Laban accuses Jacob of stealing some idol statues. He searches all of Jacob's belongings and he finds nothing. So Jacob shouts, what is my Pesha? How have I violated your trust? But the sad irony is that the statues were stolen by Jacob's wife, who is Laban's own daughter. Talk about breaking trust. So Pesha involves one person or group violating a relationship of trust with another. And this is a really common word in the Bible because it's one long story about a broken relationship between God and the Israelites. At Mount Sinai, they agreed to worship only their God and to care for the poor among them, but they didn't. And so God raised up prophets to confront them. Like Micah, who said, I'm full of power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and courage, so I can declare to Jacob his Pesha. Or the prophet Amos, he accused the Israelites of Pesha, specifically for idolatry and selling the poor for a pair of sandals. He also accused other nations, like Tyre, who profited from capturing whole towns and then selling them into slavery. Or the Ammonites for murdering the innocent to enlarge their borders. For Amos, these are all acts of Pesha. They violate the universal trust that exists between all humans who are made in the image of God. He watched these leaders ignore or justify the mistreatment of humans in the name of national security or a strong economy. But for Amos, it was a betrayal of humanity. And it makes perfect sense why these prophets associate Pesha with words like treachery or falsehood. In the Greek New Testament, the Apostle Paul develops this portrait of humans as trust breakers, using the word paraptoma. He recalls the story in Genesis about Adam, that means humanity in Hebrew. And in that story, humanity breaks trust with God and seizes authority to discern good and evil on their own terms. Paul calls this the paraptoma of Adam, humanity's violation of trust with God and with each other. And it leads to a complicated web of betrayed and broken relationships leading towards violence and death. But for Paul, that is not the last word. He says, if death came to all by the paraptoma of a human, how much more will God's gracious gift overflow to many by means of a human, Jesus the Messiah? Instead of letting humanity destroy itself in treachery, God raised up a human who would allow our Pasha to do its worst to him. Here Paul is drawing on the prophet Isaiah's portrait of the suffering servant, the one who would commit no violence or have any treachery on his lips, yet he would be counted among those Pasha, bearing their failures and interceding on their behalf. And this is the surprising story of the Bible, that God's response to humanity's pasha and paraptoma was to be trustworthy on our behalf. The apostles claim that in Jesus, God took responsibility for our betrayal so that he could open up a new future and a new way to be human, the way of faithfulness, trustworthiness, and integrity. That's the kind of human that Jesus was and is, and it's the kind of humans he wants to create as he faithfully guides our world into the new creation. And that's the fascinating story behind our biblical words for transgression. That's great, huh? That's good stuff. So that's what Jesus invites us to pray for, that if God has forgiven our paratoma, our transgression, then we are invited to forgive others. The same thing. He says, if 
We do not, if we refuse, if there's a straight-up refusal, this, let me, I also want to make a distinction. This is not, this is different than saying, I want to, but I don't know how. This is different than saying, I really want to, but it's really hard. It's different because it's about saying, I refuse to do it. Then he's saying, you're living inconsistent with who you really are. An invitation for you is to turn from that. The word for that is repent. Turn to the God that says, I will make all things new. I will wash you. I will cleanse your unfaithfulness. And I want to finish with this passage, and we'll wrap it up with this, out of the book of Hosea. I have this written up here, so check this out. It's pretty awesome. Um, the Old Testament is really this one ongoing drama and story of Israel's unfaithfulness to God, that God calls them uh, to be like a bride. And they're the wife, if you want to think of it that way, of uh, Yahweh. And yet Israel is constantly unfaithful to Yahweh. And in their constant unfaithfulness, God likens it to this, it's, it's, you're being unfaithful. And he likens it to, on the marriage night, you go out and have sex with somebody that's not your husband. This is the degree in which you sense God's anguish, God's pain, this pathos of Yahweh, and he's dealing with the reality of like, oh, I, I, all I want to do is divorce, to remove, to rid myself of Israel and their sinfulness and proclivities and the pain that they've caused me. But God also recognizes at the same time he's made some promises to their forefather, Abraham, and he loves them. So what do you do when you're in that plight? Well, this is what God says to his people. He says, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for your sins they brought you down. But your confessions and return to the Lord bring them. He says, and I will forgive your sins. I will forgive all your sins. This is what God invites us to do. This is what's invited in what we call the Lord's Prayer. So I'm going to pray right now, and we're going to respond to this God. And how about we all stand? So I don't know where you're at. Why don't we all stand? We'll respond. So I'm not sure how you've thought about this or are thinking about this currently, uh, but for some of us, maybe we need to do business with God. So as we go to sing and respond and partake of the bread and the cup, the communion, we're reminded of the fact that no matter how broken we are or how rebellious we've been, we have a God that invites us to the table. He invites us to eat with him, to drink with him. It's a place of hospitality. And this is what then Jesus then says to go and do to others, to live this out, to embody this. So I don't know where you're at, what types of circumstances you may be facing, but this is a time to respond to God and do business with him. If you have any need to have others invited in to pray for you, whether it be the confession of your own sins, your own failures, your own losses, your own grievances, or to have others pray that God would help you. This is, this is what this is all about. This is what the church is all about. We are a bunch of broken people. We are a community, as we like to say, of both sinners and saints that are invited to a table to respond, to let Jesus change us. But for some of us, you, you might not ever enter into that because there's this tendency inside of some of you all that might be like, I can work through this on my own or on my own time. And what happens is we get back into the rush of life and we forget. We get distracted. And then another week goes by 
Another month goes by, another year goes by, where all of these areas of brokenness never get taken care of. So today should be the day to respond to this God that absolutely loves you and has demonstrated his love to you. So I'll be up here. We'll have some other leaders that will be available up here that would love to pray with you. Make your way down to the front if you'd like. If As you are worshiping, you would just like to get on your knees before God in confession of your own sin. As you partake of communion, we have some rugs in the front just to kneel before God and respond. So let me pray. We'll sing and we'll respond. Jesus, thank you for the love that you've demonstrated to us. And in response and a love to you, God, we welcome your presence here to search us, to draw us near to yourself. Let's respond.